Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, hey. Steve. Shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Our guest for On The Record, this episode carved out an exceptional career as an athlete. He's turned himself with a lot of hard work into a very versatile media personality. And I should make the point that not many former AFL footballers have been able to do that. Just a handful. Jonathan Brown, people like Brendan Favola, Jared Healy, Wayne Carey, Matthew Lloyd. I'm sure I've missed some, but this episode's guest, Luke Darcy, has also turned himself into, in my view, uh, a political pundit and, of course, he's a businessman. Luke, welcome. Thank you, Pricey. I'm not sure I've ever been introduced as a political pundit before, but I'm not sure that's necessarily accurate, but always good to chat to you. Thanks for having me. Look, I know that you are a little reluctant to personalise the interview that you did with Daniel Andrews, but... Could you imagine that, though, Luke, at the start of this year, uh, that an interview that you did with the Premier of Victoria uh, would be considered, and I think it widely considered, as the toughest and best research political interview of the year? Well, um, yeah, again, uh, probably uh, something I probably wouldn't have thought in January. There's a lot of things I thought in January <laughs> would may never have happened, Pricey, to be honest with you. Uh, you still wake up occasionally think, can you believe this is the new norm of, uh, of what life's turned out to be? It's been fascinating and that probably is an extension of it. And uh, yeah, referring to you know, a conversation you had on the uh, Triple M Hot Breakfast that I co-host with Eddie McGuire and that you're a regular guest on, on Pricey. And I suppose a bit of context, I think people probably listen to that bit of audio of me and maybe haven't listened to me uh, before in the past. But uh, I often say to people, Daniel Andrews has been in our studio. I've met him. I would think it would have to be close to 25 or 30 times. And I, and I think he's a smart, intelligent, personable um, leader of Victoria. I just under this time where we have been in the most extraordinary draconian lockdown, it's been described to me by some of the most intelligent people I know as almost a medieval way to try and uh, uh, defeat a virus. If defeating a virus in itself is actually the right term. So I've been asking those questions and they were just asking questions, Pricey. So it wasn't trying to make a political statement, inject myself into the conversation necessarily, but I've been asking those similar questions with you and others all year and have been surprised that others haven't been asking them, to be to be honest with you. So I think perhaps that gained a bit more traction than I would have thought, but I'm still passionate about those same questions. I think all of us every day should be you know, fighting and asking, is this the best way? What are we learning about locking people down. We're not talking enough in my mind about the health cost of people that's being locked away for such a long period of time. And my great fear is that is going to last for a long period of time to come. We're going to get into your extraordinary uh, football and media career in a sec. I just want to put a a line through this. I've been working once a week with you and Eddie uh, on the hot breakfast since January, and we've been in harsh lockdown in Victoria, it seems like, for most of the year. But I did detect a change in your view about how this uh, coronavirus was being handled in Victoria, you you did change. At, at the beginning, yeah. I think you were less critical of the way that Victoria was trying to handle it. At some point, you convinced yourself and you talked to people in business and you had a mind shift. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely, Price. And I think, um, I think at the start, I mean, who knew uh, you know anything about the global virus? Who knew anything about the COVID nineteen virus? And I think the idea at the start that um, our health system could be overwhelmed and that we run out of hospital beds and you have people dying in corridors, we're quite right to put every measure in place. And the first lockdown, I think, for people made a lot of sense. Made a lot of sense to me. 
the fact is, Christy, since then we have learned a lot about it. And look, I'm not sitting here pretending to be anything apart from who I am, not pretending to be a medical expert or an epidemiologist or a doctor. And I come at this from a whole range of areas, as we all do in our life, of having four kids that have spent essentially a whole year at home homeschooling. That concerns me and concerns others. And, and I suppose when you look at the evidence overseas, I've just been surprised that some of those uh, numbers haven't been brought to the table. And I, look, I've been alarmed by the um, the leaders of, of, of our state and the leaders of our country spreading fear and division rather than hope. And to me, the thing, we've now got this metric every day and we say, how many people have got a virus, which is one way to look at it. The thing that is the most important question to me is how dangerous is this virus? How, how likely are Victorians, you know, Australians to die from this virus? And the overwhelming evidence, in fact, all of if you, you don't have to read too far from the World Health Organization to the CDC, they will tell you that the mortality rate of this virus is less than 0.05%, 0.05%. So it is absolutely comparable and less than what the seasonal flu does every year. So is the measure then of locking people down and the tsunami of health effects created by that, i.e. are we going to have a, a mental health tragedy that's unfolding before our eyes? What is the effect of when people lose their financial world? We know that devastates families for decades to come. Why are we not talking at the same time around the cost of keeping people locked away at the same time as our leaders say, this is a great success. We're doing a great thing here by staying at home, keeping you locked in your in your house. I think we should be talking because the stats are there. Our leaders know the stats, how bad they are. Young teenage girls self-harming at record numbers, record amounts of antidepressants being prescribed to kids as young as 10 in our state price. These are horrible, horrible things happening. Is the measure to counteract what's happening justified or is it a bit of an over-the-top reaction? I think I'm not pretending to be an expert, Pricey, but I think we should be asking those questions. Strikes me, Luke, we're going to look back on this, say, in three, four, five years' time and say we did it too hard, it was too harsh, and we weren't paying enough attention to the mental impact on on all of the population, not just young people, but I think we've ripped the guts out of a lot of young people's uh, final years at school and their first year of gap year. And you, know, you and I have children of similar ages that, that they've just missed out on so much stuff. But then I look at someone like my own mother, who's in her late 80s on her own in in South Australia, uh, fighting fit, never had a, an illness in her life. But she goes to her, her GP a couple of weeks ago and he says, you're suffering from isolation syndrome. You're actually yeah. got, a, got a form of depression. Now, I mean, I can't go and see you. That, that to me is just, you know, it's crush, crushing. It's heartbreaking, Pricey, and, and they're the stories that we need to share and we need to tell in, in my mind. And, and, you know, I feel very fortunate. You're in a very fortunate position in lots of ways, Pricey, as well. Some has had great success in their life. And I live in, a, in an unbelievable uh, relationship. I've got really healthy kids who otherwise cope really well. Um, I've had, you know, jobs and work throughout this time. But it's easy to get bracketed. People said, oh, you know, you're the guy that wants to get his pubs open. I'd love to get the hospitality industry up. And I've been part of that all my life as kids growing up. That was a huge part of my family's interest. But likewise, um, you know, it's so easy to bracket people, Pricey. If you ask these questions now, everyone takes a side and says, oh, you're anti Dan Andrews or you're, you know, on the far right or the far left or whatever. I don't um, align with any of that, that thinking. And to me, it's just uh, if you've got the privilege of having a microphone every day, I've been doing. Uh, the radio show for 11 years now, if you don't use that to at least ask hopefully well-thought-out intelligence questions, then I, I don't think you're doing your job that, that particularly well. So it has elicited powerful responses. This has created 
And to me, that's what concerns. I walk around Melbourne now, and you can feel the fear and the tension. I had, uh, you know, I told you a story the other day of a young lady who walked past my wife, and her mask was my wife's mask was just below her nose, not intentionally. She's been doing the right thing, whatever the right thing is. This lady jumped out into oncoming traffic and nearly got hit by a truck, and she was shaking with fear because she'd seen an exposed nose of my wife Beck, and this truck driver had to pull over and was shaking. He thought he'd killed. I mean, we've got to the point where our reaction and our fear, because our leaders keep sowing fear in, not we are going to be the best city to live with this virus. We are going to be the best. We've got the best medical facilities. We've got the smartest uh, you know, people in, in the world, and we are going to make sure that people live with this virus better than ever. We want you to continue to invest in Victoria. We want you to get back to work. We're going to get back safely. We're going to have all of the ideas, because the ideas are there in the private sector. We've been talking about them every day to be able to do these things safely, open up, do it safely. No one wants to be reckless. No one um, wants to uh, do this in a, um, in a, in a le- anything less than the most thoughtful way, Pricey. But at the moment, it's just lock you down until we get an eradication of this virus. And to me, what cost? What is the cost of Melbourneans? What are we going to look back? You, you know, you drove through the city the other day, Pricey, and you saw a beautiful city boarded up and and people struggling to, to come back from that is a, is a real concern. Is there a way to have to do this where we can do it safely and open up at the same time, I'm convinced there is and you know, it's been a hard conversation to have. Let's pray and hope that things are, are going to get better. Let's talk about some positive stuff. Like me, you were, <laughs> you're a, you were born in South Australia uh, and uh, your recently departed dad, Dave Darcy, who I covered as a journal when he was playing footy, um, he, he was a Victorian but he moved to South Australia for football. Do you, do you feel more like a Victorian or a South Australian? What do you say when someone asks you, uh, who, what are you? Well, that's a good question, Pricey. I, I arrived over as a 17-year-old with strong Melbourne ties because my dad and both my and my mum were, were Melbourneers, and I used to spend a lot of my uh, school holidays uh, down at Anglesey where my mum's parents lived and in the western suburbs of Melbourne where dad's uh, mum, Nana Das and Pop Das lived. So I had a, a great affiliation with Melbourne. But I arrived a very passionate South Australian, playing at South Adelaide, <laughs> idolising Stephen Kernahan. Uh, I had a half a stick's mullet when I arrived, and I turned up at training, and uh, you know, Chris Grant was the legendary teammate of mine. I'd call him Granty with a South Australian accent. That didn't go down too well. So first half of my life, very passionate South Australian, and now very, very passionate uh, Victorian. I've lived longer in Victoria now than, uh, than South Australia. Married a beautiful Victorian girl, four kids born here, so... I uh, pretty parochial, uh, passionate uh, Victorian these days. But I think us South Australians have got to stick together. I'm, I'm like you. I first came to Victoria as a 21-year-old in 1976, and I tell you, Melbourne was a very different place back then, and I've lived here most of the rest of my life. But And I've often hidden the fact that I'm a South Australian because Adelaide became a bit of a daggy joint where nothing happened and they didn't didn't make Holdens there anymore and it was a bit of a rust bucket state. But us South Australians, Darcy, we've got to stick together. We've got to actually fly the flag. I mean, imagine, no, living, right. in, imagine living in Adelaide now. You and I would be able to go to the pub today. Well, you're right. And, and you know what? I have got a, a, a great love of, of the city I grew up in and I have been back there a bit more in recent times. I um, have started a business with an, an old friend of mine that I played at South Adelaide with and he lives in the McLaren Vale of South Australia. And I've been back there a lot more in recent times and been able to stay down in that beautiful part of the world and back in the city. But it is a magic place and uh, under, undersold, underestimated. And as a kid, you probably didn't appreciate what the Barossa was and the Clare Valley and beautiful city of Adelaide and the climate and, and, and everyone, you, you live well in South Australia. And I, that, that struck me when I first came to Melbourne. I, 
I couldn't believe that people had a house that had a party wall joined up next to each other. How could you possibly, even in you know the, the poorer suburbs, the outer suburbs of South Australia, everyone had land and space and parklands and greenery. So a beautiful city to grow up in, Price, you've been very lucky. This will shock you. I mean, uh, in the days of social media, people can find all sorts of things. I woke up the other day, someone had sent me a, a private message on Instagram with the message saying, you probably don't want to know that this photograph still exists. It was a picture of me in a team photo playing for the South Adelaide under-17s. <laughs> uh, I played, I think, one game. I sat on the bench for most of it. I couldn't play very well. Uh, and someone had found it. Someone had found this picture and decided to send it to me to remind me of my South Australian background. The only thing I remember about that team was a guy called David Young played for South Adelaide in that team with me in the under-17s. So it was a different well, way to grow up, wasn't it? That would have been the uh, the magnificent Panther Park price Panther you would have Park. been sitting. So <laughs> we might have uh, tracked a similar path, Price. Uh, a few years apart, it's fair to fair to say. I, I'm, I'm always uh, you know surprised, isn't it? When you know, well, I'm 162 with- centimetres, you're, you're 197, <laughs> mate. Yeah, we played slightly different roles, but uh, that was my. I was father son to South Adelaide because Dad went over to captain coach South Adelaide. So even though I uh, I lived in Norwood and went to school that side of town, so I was a bit of, uh, you know, heading with all the boys from down south. I uh, I put a few noses out of joint price when you come out of playing school footy and take someone's spot at South Adelaide. I had a few hurdles to overcome at Panther Park in the early days. I was a, I was a bit on the wrong side of town, but uh, I grew to love that that club and I was lucky enough to play, um, you know, I think 15 you know, senior games for South Adelaide under John Reed, who was actually my godfather and my dad's best mate, who dad coached when he came over to, uh, to South Adelaide. And speaking to John at... Yeah, Dad's funeral uh, we did online a few months back, and he said, "You know, your dad's a good guy." When he sacked me in his first year, and we became best mates, it's a good indication that uh, he was a pretty decent guy. I grew up in Seacom Heights, in the same street as John Reed. Can you believe that? Well, I know exactly. Is that right? You lived in that street opposite I the spent, tennis courts. Yeah. Oh my, that is extraordinary. I can take my mind straight back to there. And in fact, when I was a boarder, I used to go and stay at the Reeds. Uh, John Reader went on to be the, um, you know, the, the sensational footy manager at the Crows when they won their two flags on the Malcolm Blight and coached South Adelaide. And um, the uh, the Reeds have been just great, our great family friends. So, man, I would have been in that street every other weekend, I think, but just up the road from you, Price. Yeah, that's extraordinary. The Reeds had triplets. So Justin Reed and Hayley and Kirsty are our great great friends. Justin's the, uh, the, the list manager at the Adelaide Crows now. So uh, no, that's fascinating, Price. I know that street very well. So you were a boarder at Ross Trevor College or a day boy? I was a boarder in the end because mum and dad, uh, who were publicans in South Australia, we started off living pricey upstairs in the old pubs, the old colonist tavern in the parade and the fountain inn out in Glenunga. We used to live upstairs in the rooms and, and um, all of us sort of said that, you know, watching mum and dad work so hard in the pub game, we'd never get involved in it, but it must have been in our blood somewhere. We used to go and pick up the plates if we wanted to earn some pocket money and get told off if we were jumping up and down and the chandeliers were swinging downstairs. We were making too much noise upstairs. But um, they moved to Roxby Downs. They bought the original pub and the motel up there, the Roxby Downs Motor Gee, Ring. that's a is, life change. Well, I remember, Pricey, having that conversation with mum and dad. Uh, I was a very happy uh, year eight at school, and um, I was uh, very, very determined I was going to be an AFL player. And uh, they said, we're moving to Roxby Downs. I, I think the tears lasted the eight-and-a-half-hour <laughs> drive. Oh. All the way up to Roxby Downs. We should tell people know it, Roxby Downs is the middle of the desert. It literally is the centre of Australia. And I went from uh, 
school at uh, school called Ross Trevor College in LA with all my great mates for the Roxby Downs area school. Which oh my was god! A fair change of uh, of scenery, and I ended up having one of the most you know fantastic years. I was that upset, you know, as a as a whatever thirteen year old. You've ruined my life. And I was sitting in the backyard, and I had my arms crossed, and I had tears rolling down my face. I think it destroyed my life. And literally, an, an AFL football almost landed on my head without uh, without a shadow of a lie. And I look over the fence, and there's a guy next door called Troy Clements, who became still one of my lifelong friends. Uh, we spent every minute of uh, – he went and played 200 games for the Nord Football Club in South Australia. So I had a great experience. Mum and Dad stayed there for more than a decade. I spoke to Craig Kelly, the former Collingwood champ and uh, obviously player manager for On The Record a couple of weeks back, and he went to Prince Alfred College, very toffee Craig was. Uh, he was head boy in year 12. <laughs> he was the only head boy at uh, Prince Alfred College in history to fail year 12. Were you <laughs> academic, Luke? Well, they, uh, Craig Kelly is head boy at uh, PAC. That that sounds like a, the fix is in. Oh, as I, I said, I wouldn't have thought <laughs> the man that was known as Cement Head, who went on to be my manager for the best part of 20 years, Bryson. Yes. So very familiar with uh, with Ned's story at PAC on his way to, to Collingwood. So I, I wouldn't describe myself as a natural academic. I was uh, focused pretty solely on uh, AFL football, but I um, – Going to boarding school was a good thing for me because I was able then to get the, the discipline. And I, when I put my mind to it, I was capable. Um, I, uh, I, I entered when I first came here. I started a, uh, a bachelor of business course when I moved over to play for the, the Bulldogs, but only lasted about uh, eight weeks and decided that the full-time footy was the go. Western Bulldogs, 1993. What were you, 17 or 18? Yeah, 17, turning 18, 1993. What was the what was the Western Bulldogs football club? I mean, it 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 was that was not long after the forced merger failed, where Ross Oakley and the then VFL tried to turn the Bulldogs uh, into a team to combine with Fitzroy. What was it like in when you got there in '93? I mean, I, I imagine the uh, the facilities weren't all that flash. No, they used to sweep the rats out of the gym pricey before we got in. And uh, they did a huge uh, renovation, I think, uh, a couple of years later. And we all painted the uh, the gym. That was the uh, the extent of the budget. And uh, looking back, it was just such an extraordinary environment to walk into. I was so uh, really naive to, to what professional sport looked like. Uh, even though I was desperate to play it, I was really nothing like as prepared as the 17, 18-year-olds that walk in off the street. So I, I look back and think, God, you're lucky that you actually got through that first 12 months and had a couple of injuries and, and managed to find a way, but it was, it was amazing. It was all my dreams come true. The legendary Doug Hawkins, uh, you know, shakes your hand as you walk through the door. Scott Wine, you know, has become a lifelong friend and, you know, a mentor and uh, someone that I spent so much time with wanting to play the role that, that, that he was playing. And I just look back and, you know, just think of the, the great friendships out of it. I landed at the airport from Adelaide, uh, as I said, a fairly naive, fairly skinny young kid from South Australia. And Danny Southern arrives from Western Australia on the same Time we got picked up by uh, you know the same uh, uh, Maxi Kleiman who uh, who was the recruiting officer picked us up and I was looking at this wild wild crazed man from Perth and we became great mates as as well he was just uh, he lived a very different life than me at that stage and we used to drive around the city of Melbourne and and uh, check out all these different places and try and familiarise ourselves and yeah he had a great year first up nearly became an Australian his first year it took me a bit longer but um, yeah it was a pretty different place and as you said. Peter Gordon and the club had just come back from a miracle that they'd survived, and that was still there in the minds of the players. It was survival rather than thrive, and, and you know, it'd almost be the point, if you got your pay came through, 
people would almost uh, go and have a coffee and think that was a bit of a win because it didn't necessarily come through every month, even in 1993. How important was it that you went to the Western Bulldogs through father-son? I mean, you must be a big supporter, I gather, of father-son because if you, you know, as a a strapping 17, 18-year-old from South Australia with clear talent, you could have probably picked any club you wanted to go to. Was it important you went there? Yeah, look, I probably came from a bit further back than that price. I had a really badly broken leg at uh, school in year uh, year 10. It took me out of the game for 18 months. Um, broke my tibia and my fibula in a school game. And so I, I had a bit of a slower building to, to that time. The Adelaide Crows came into the competition in 1992 and they had all of these uh, opportunities to select local players. And so there was uh, an opportunity for me to get into the extended group at the Adelaide Crows. But... I had this draw to Melbourne um, with the, the heritage. Now, Dad was very, very quiet and very humble about his playing time and you know, wouldn't have known that he played for the, literally apart from the fact that he called football over there and somehow that had a massive influence over me and what I wanted to do post-football post as well. But there was this draw in me. I, you know, there's a direct path you can get to go to the Bulldogs Football Club. And yeah, I am a great supporter. I, I love it, Price. You know, obviously, it was great for me, but I think people you know, from overseas, look at our sport and you think, you know, Gary Ablett Jr. at Geelong, you know, following the path of Gary Ablett Sr. and Steve Silvani on the on the back of the great Serge Silvani and now Jack and uh, and the Silvani boy. I think it's just a great uh, part of our game and, and I, hope it, um, I hope it continues. I think uh, we need to hang on to a few of those traditions. Who was your first coach there? First coach was Terry Wheeler, who was um, quite an extraordinary person. We... Uh, Jumped out of an aeroplane uh, into the bay that first. Now, fortunately, uh, the budget didn't quite stretch to uh, to the two new recruits, Danny Southern and, and myself. Danny Southern was so upset. I was the happiest person in Australia that they decided I didn't have to jump out of a plane my first week. But we did, so he did some extraordinary – he was ahead of his time, Terry Will, in lots of ways. He actually got sacked um, early on that year after getting belted by Geelong. Um, but uh, he was a great person. Alan Joyce then took over. Um, you know, early part of the, the season in 1994. But uh, he had a big impact on me over the summer, Terry Wheeler, just his creativity and thought about the game in a way that I hadn't uh, hadn't thought of before. So did you feel as a uh, as a player in a team that you were representing the Western Suburbs, was that a, a, a driving force, that you felt like you were the sort of working-class club looking after the, the West of Melbourne? Because that's what really, I think, saved Footscray, the Western Bulldogs, from that merger that – someone looked at it and said, hang on, we've got to have one club that represents this a massive part of Melbourne. And I think the AFL and Ross Oakley uh, Price overlooked the passion of what it meant in that part of the world. I don't think they understood just, you know, it might have had the biggest membership base. It it mightn't have um, been financially stable all the time. But when you talk about taking that away from that part of the world, to rattle the tins and and what, what Peter Gordon and the team and Irene Chatfield did in that era, Literally, you know, Ross Oakley, you need to come up with $2 million to get it in cash from, you know, one of the lowest socioeconomic parts of Melbourne. You look back, that, that is just a miracle sporting story to keep the club mm. alive. But you're right, it was it was a reflection of the West. Doug Hawkins was our champion, grew up playing for Braybrook. EJ Whitten was, you know, Braybrook's other, you know, legendary superstar. The great Charlie Sutton was at the door to greet you when you came into training. You grew up in Altona. You know, Rowan Smith was my teammate who, Grew up around the corner in Yarraville, Brad Johnson, you know, from the inner western suburbs. So it, it was just, you know, the end of the zoning part, but it was a really, really strong heritage uh, in the west of Melbourne and became very passionate, still am, about the importance of uh, 
you know, what we need to do to support that part of the world because, um, you know, footy clubs and the Bulldogs do it brilliantly now, Pricey. They have fantastic programs that really uh, do great work in that part of the world. Yeah, it would have been a tragedy if they hadn't survived. I was producing Neil Mitchell on 3RW at the time and we did a radio broadcast from a mobile studio in the mall out there in Footscray and invited all the Footscray supporters to turn up and su- support the team. And Irene Chatfield came in and had a, a, a discussion with Neil. And I remember we put Ross Oakley on the on the phone and suddenly everybody started booing and hissing and, and saying to Ross Oakley to get their hands off their footy club. It was a great, a, a great victory by citizen power. People just weren't prepared to let... The, the names of Witten and Sutton and just disappear and it would have been a tragedy if it had happened. Yeah, and then to come full circle, Bryce, and uh, to be there in 2016 and to see the club uh, win its second ever premiership uh, against all odds in, again, miracle fashion was just uh, one of the uh, the greatest days that I've uh, I've ever had to see the amount of hard work that's gone in and um, knowing so many of those people how much it meant to to not only um, the people that played but the past players. Uh, to be at the Witten Oval the Sunday afterwards, down on that balcony, it was it was like the Beatles had come to town. They were hanging <laughs> off the rafters. It was uh, it was a magic moment. And lucky enough to have my four kids, they're all passionate Bulldog supporters. For them to be fortunate enough to be able to witness that was uh, something I'll never forget. Before we move away from your playing career, you actually uh, shared the MVP award with the great Michael Voss. You must have had a pretty good year that year. Yeah, you're really lucky to be um, when you know, when you when you players that you play against and with. I think, uh, you know, what you want to do, I think when you first start, you know, am I good enough to play a game? Am I good enough to have an influence on the team? And then you want, you know, the respect of your of your um, peers, I think is always a, a pretty um, humbling and rewarding thing. So to be voted that year, you know, the great Michael Voss, uh, yeah, had a, uh, had a reasonable year in 2002, which was good. The the game really started to change as you when you first started. Really, I mean, I listened back to a podcast with Doug Hawkins the other day, and he was talking about playing for Victoria uh, with Darren Mullane and getting into a fight in a casino in Tasmania and <laughs> getting locked up by the police and the media finding out about it. And Dougie, you know, making the point that he really didn't perhaps uh, train and and concentrate as hard on his footy as he as he should have. He was out drinking and drinking too much, but he must have been a hell of a talent. Oh, what a what a player and what a what a person! Just a great um, individual, Doug. You, you know, you you know him really well, Pricey. But I just felt it was an honour to spend some time with Hawk. And you're right; it was a different era. My my image of of, of uh, the great Doug Hawkins is that uh, he used to take um, a six pack of beer into the shower. He used to have a special chair that he would sit <laughs> in the chair, and uh, he would sit there with the hot water. There was no water restrictions in those uh, days, and the big old dish showers and. Uh, and Doug would turn up at the team meeting having uh, knocked off a fair part of that six-pack, and that, that was a slightly different era than the uh, the dietitians and uh, and modern play. It was a bit of a simpler time, but um, it was a fun time as well. Yeah, last year playing, you actually started your media career, didn't you? You were actually in the media working, despite the fact that you were still a listed uh, AFL player. Is that right? Yeah, it's true. I, I did my knee in 2005, and uh, right from the start, Price, you know, my, my dad, as I mentioned as you well know, uh, called a lot of sport in South Australia and I sat up in the back of the commentary box and somewhere in my mind, you know, I used to actually call the game in my own head as I was playing. It used to drive me mad. I'd call myself playing and I'd volunteer for, for you know, to go and make a, you know, a copy for Jared Healy at 3AW or um, anyone that, that, that wanted someone to, to come on. I, I just put my hand up. So when I did my knee, uh, Dave Barron from Channel 10 was the head of Channel 10 Sports. said, look, we listened to you a fair bit. We think you can come on and, and and do the game and do special comments, which was 
pretty controversial because no current player had actually been on a list and, and actually worked, you know, effectively full-time for Channel 10 when I was injured. So um, it got a bit of uh, criticism, as most things do, that are different at that time. But the club loved it because the Bulldogs wanted that sort of uh, profile attached to their club. So it gave me a great opportunity to get some, some hours up and, you know, meet a few people in the industry before you know, I finished up a couple of years later. Dave Barham was a real visionary. I mean, he, the impact he's had on televised sport in this country across all networks, but particularly Channel 10 and Channel 7, he's done some amazing stuff. He was brilliant for me, uh, Price. He's one of those people that he, he loves backing young people in, and he, and he did. He just said, oh, you can do this. You know the game well enough, and, and uh, don't worry about it. that hasn't been done before you get in. And then he's in, the next person to challenge you, you know, I think you could, you could host. You could, why don't you host the next segment? What are you talking about? I think you could <laughs> call a game. And, uh, and he, he just sort of was one of the people that backed you in. And um, you're right, he was a great visionary uh, in AFL and did a brilliant job with the Big Bash too. I mean, he really set up the Big Bash cricket uh, when many thought that was just going to be a bit of a hit and giggle, he turned it into a, a bit of a phenomenon. You're unique in that uh, you played and you call. I mean, lots of players, ex-players, uh, have gone on to become really good uh, special comments commentators, and I mentioned you know, people like Wayne Carey. Uh, did you always have a passion to want to call it? You said you were calling yourself in your, in your head, and did you not look around and think, well, oh, there's not too many ex-players. I mean, Brian Taylor, I guess, is an exception who actually can call Kevin Bartlett's another one, but it's a, it's a rarity rather than common, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think it was necessarily that strategic with that price. It was, it, that was the thing that I had in my mind that I uh, would like to call you know, the game of AFL football and work in the media and, and you know, the, uh, the, the, the phenomenon that was a footy show to, to, to turn up there and see how big it was and how big the opportunity you know, was going to be. So I think to me, in my mind, that was something that I had planned or wanted to try and do and, and put a bit of time into as, as my, um, my career unfolded. The, uh, the move into to, you know, to Breakfast Radio and, and uh, the interest in other parts of my life, that was not something that I had necessarily thought of, but I've really enjoyed the broader stuff, which was probably where we started this conversation, Pricey, is... Uh, you know, a broader interest in uh, in things that outside of uh, football, which I love, but um, you know, enjoy other parts of my life as well. Channel Ten lost the rights. You, did you always feel that you'd get picked up by Channel Seven? You've worked in the industry long enough, Price. You know, you, you never have certainty uh, in this space in anything. So, look again, very very lucky um, that um, I think I was the only um, you know one out of Channel Ten that uh, Lewis Martin. Gave me a call and uh, and said we think um, you'd be um, you know worthwhile coming over to Channel Seven. I've had an unbelievable uh, opportunity, and I still turn up pricey. I'm not sure how you feel after so many years of doing what you do, but every time about to call the semi final this weekend on Channel Seven, I just feel privileged every time I sit at, at a game. We've been doing it off the screen this year, but I still sit there and think I'm working with these great uh, friends of mine now who are great champions, you know, Saturday night I'll be sitting alongside Matthew Richardson and James Brayshaw and then Friday night footy on Triple M with, with Chris Jard and, um, Nathan Brown, my old teammate, Mark Howard. So I just love the team part of it, Bryce. I love sitting there and, uh, the enjoyment of doing a game and still being involved. I always feel it's a great privilege. So now you never feel, um, as though you're guaranteed anything in this industry. It's, uh, it's going to come to an end, and look, and it should come to an end at some stage because um, I, I get excited by the next generation coming through. I think Nick Rewalt's sensational, John Brown's sensational. So um, I, um, you know, looking forward to the next chapter posted as well. But while it's still there, it's a, it's a lot of fun. What's the difference, Luke, between calling on radio and calling on television? Clearly, obviously, one's got pictures, one doesn't. But do you have to do it differently? 
Yeah, it is. It's a different uh, art. I think the, the, the tendency when you're doing the TV is to, is to maybe talk too much and get a bit too, uh, I suppose, um, verbose in the way you do it because uh, the pictures are there to tell the story. I think that takes a little bit of practice to sit back and say, I listen to the sounds of the game. We're really big on that at, at Channel 7. The, the game itself tells a story when you can see it and you don't want to necessarily trample over you know, some of the effects and that beautiful noise when the crowd knows a mark's coming. Uh, you also, you know, really want to know, <laughs> you've got to be pretty accurate on TV because people at home are incredibly accurate. They know their team, they know their players. Nothing gets uh, people more irate than you, you know, not uh, understanding or getting a name wrong, which is a bit of an art. Radio I love because to me it reminds me of being in the locker room, Pricey. I, I think yeah, we're in an entertainment medium and so, you know, I sit around on Friday night, you're sort of bringing that locker room banter, that fun of football, that entertainment. You can muck around a bit more, I find, on radio because, you know, as I said, the pitchers aren't there to tell the story. We get the chance to tell the story on radio. And, and when you're doing it with either people you played against or with or, uh, you know, long-term, you know, legends of the game, there's a lot of fun to me in uh, in the radio form of calling the game. Yes, I did manage uh, a calling team that included uh, Rex Hunt, Sam Newman, Ron Barassi, which was uh, one of the more challenging things I've ever had to do in my in my life. Um, radio is a great medium. I mean, the other thing that makes you uh, unique, Luke, is that you've ha- you've had your playing career, uh, your television broadcasting career, but you have now uh, cemented yourself as a breakfast radio host. Now, breakfast radio, in my view, having worked in the media for a very long time, is the hardest job in media, particularly because you of the hours, you have to get up very early, but you've got a, a partner with you in Eddie Maguire. Uh, when I listen, as I do now every morning, uh, it's a great partnership. I mean, how has it been working with someone with such a high profile where every second word that he utters can potentially become a headline? Yeah, he's extraordinary, isn't he, Price? And you've known him for, for so long, and then I – you know, right from the first day I came to Melbourne, uh, you know, it had a huge presence. We used to, you know, find out if we were in and out of the uh, of the team when he called out the teams on the footy show. That's how big it was. You weren't uh, told by the coach, listening to the footy show. So we were glued to that. And then as someone who, who had a passion to want to work in the media, I got to know him really well in the footy show days and was on that show regularly and it was a great opportunity. So, yeah, when he called 11 years ago and said um, – we actually, in between Ed coming back as a CEO of Channel 9, we actually called a couple of games uh, on SEN and uh, sort of reconnected. And he had the idea of uh, wanting to start Triple M's Hot Breakfast on uh, on Breakfast Radio. And it was a, it was something I hadn't sort of thought of before, but you always pick up the phone when Ed calls. And look, he's just a um, force of nature, Pricey. I've never met anyone quite like him. I've never been around. We've had our... Uh, which is which is a great part. You can have a great debate with Ed. You can have a, uh, you know you can be on the other side of um, of uh, whatever argument you like. But you know as soon as the ad break comes or um, you know there's no, never been an issue. And we've always uh, you know had a great uh, natural partnership in lots of ways. It's um, it's it's been a great opportunity to sit alongside someone. You know you need people like that in my mind. I, I think of Peter Gordon at the Bulldogs and and Ed. You know, people that sort of get things done in a way that very few can. I, I wouldn't, couldn't imagine doing the sort of things that Ed's done. I look at his day, I look at what he does in a week, and I think you know, I'd last about uh, about half a week on that on that schedule. He's just got, as you know, he's got a capacity, he's got an energy that is is quite unique. And you know, to sit alongside that every day, and and um, and also just people come on, people that I wouldn't have necessarily had to you know to sit here and have every prime minister in the last eleven years walk through our studio and get the opportunity to, to meet them and, and, you know, I'm interested in all that stuff, Pricey. I love 
the, the variety of, of life and uh, you don't necessarily, you know, a bit like at the moment, um, you know, when you've got this huge time in Melbourne and you, you get a chance to speak to, you know, epidemiologists from Sweden on the show and then next up is, um, you know, Steve Price talking from a completely different angle. I love the opportunity to do it and, uh, you know, maybe over time it's, uh, it's a skill you get better at. Ever ask him why me? Why did you choose me? I haven't actually. That's a good question. He, he, he might have had a second thoughts a few times. I think I've, uh, <laughs> I think I've uh, irritated him. Uh, I think I've irritated him a Maybe bit more in twenty twenty during the Daniel Andrews interview. He might uh, have had second I, thoughts. I, I, I think he was thinking about maybe that was the worst decision he'd ever made. It's about the longest I've ever work. heard Eddie Maguire stay silent. <laughs> yes, I did have that feedback. It was uh, very rare to get eighteen minutes without Eddie yeah. speaking. <laughs> yes, I think he was. Uh, a little bit concerned about where I was heading uh, with that, but credit to him to, to, to sit back and let uh, that interview go because obviously it was uh, it was on a little bit of a roll at that stage. But um, yeah, no, I haven't actually asked him. I'm not sure what what he saw, but um, you know, 11 years later, it's been a lot of fun. One of my favourite uh, stories that you've done through this whole disastrous COVID lockdown was when you were absolutely outraged one morning that your local park had removed the football goalposts and behind posts and getting ready for the cricket season. Uh, that showed to me that family is so important to you and you were so passionate about how your boys wanted to get down there and kick the footy. You got the post back up within about you know half an hour, but family's obviously clearly, Luke, something that is at the heart of, the, of your existence. Oh, it certainly is uh, pricey, and um, you know, as you know, it's very, very hard to impress your kids. They have no interest in, uh, you know, whether or not you, you think you might have, uh, you know, played a couple hundred games of AFL football or or uh, sit on a radio show in the morning. But when you can get the goalpost put back up <laughs> at your local park, uh, I've never had a, well, I don't think I've ever had a prouder moment. Particularly, um, uh, you know, my daughter played a lot of uh, junior footy as well, but the the, the three boys have uh, in their breaks from homeschooling, jump on their bike or go for a run straight down and kick goals. And uh, and it's kept them going you know, right throughout this period and, and, and have done it safely. And there's been you know this great um, ability to be able to do that either end. You've got goals at either end. So when they came down that morning and uh, young Will, my 13-year-old, came home very, very sad, I thought, oh, you know what, Price, you haven't uh, had the opportunity to do it, but we need to ask uh, the local mayor what he thinks. So credit to them. They, uh, they had a rethink about uh, the goalpost being a good idea and giving kids, we needed to give them something during this period of time. So uh, a rare bit of credit on the home front with the kids. But, yeah, and no, I'm really lucky to have had four of them that are healthy and happy and, um, yeah, it's a massive part of uh, every day. How par- hard has it been for your wife, Beck, with the homeschooling? Yeah, look, it's, uh, you know, extraordinary. And, um, again, I, I, I just feel incredibly lucky, Pricey, to have, uh, you know, a partner who, who is a genuine superstar and, and I'm incredibly lucky. And, you know, we, uh, you know, it sounds very cliche, Price, when you start talking about your, your partner, but, um, uh, you know, we couldn't be closer and, and just watching her and the way she's gracefully uh, handled it. But, um, I, you know, again, I, it's probably where these questions have come to the Premier, is it? I live in a house pricey that's, uh, I'm incredibly lucky. It's got space. It's got facilities. I live across from a park. I've got four kids homeschooling, but I've seen them go through more challenge than they've ever been in any time of their life. And when your kids say to you, hey, dad, there's nothing to look forward to, no sporting event, nothing at all to project forward to, that, that's a concerning thing you need to discuss. Now I look and think, how have the people coped who have been in dysfunctional relationships or worse, abusive relationships? or kids that have needed to get to school because that's their sanctuary where they get help and they get support. How have the families coped who live in the commission flats 
with, you know, sometimes six people in one and two bedroom apartments. How's that been for them? It's been terrible. It's been horrific. And, you know, hopefully you, know, you need to be a voice for, for, for these people. I think it hasn't been a loud enough voice. I think, you know, the numbers that keep coming out around, you know, I mentioned at the start, and, I, and I'm, I'm sorry to go back there again, Pricey, because it makes me upset, makes me emotional, but we have left people behind. The message has been that this doesn't discriminate. It does discriminate. Those that have, uh, have struggled have had the worst outcomes potentially ever in their life uh, exacerbated by this. And, you know, I just wish we could find a more humane and compassionate way to, to, to talk about the needs of those people, in, uh, particularly in Victoria. It has been a tough, tough time. Interestingly, uh, genuine compassion is something that is fairly rare in the media. And I think one of the things about you, and it probably comes uh, from – perhaps uh, representing a working-class football club, and Eddie growing up in a working-class suburb like Broadmeadows, you haven't forgotten uh, where you've come from, and so you do have a, a thought about people who are not so well off. That That's not often, and I'm saying this having worked with a whole bunch of people in the media, it's not often that you get people in the media who think like that. I think it's a great credit to both of you. Well, uh, you know, thanks, Bryce. You know, again, I, I've also seen people who, through this time, and and again, you know, it's a tough time for our leaders as well. So we're not saying, hey, you needed uh, a playbook and to get this all right. What what I would have hoped to me, leadership, twenty twenty leadership to me is about collaboration. It's about self reflection. It's about self awareness to say, you know, I haven't got all the answers at the moment. What is the discussion to take on? Because there's brilliant minds here in Melbourne, fantastic medical people who have written and said, hey, there is a more humane and compassionate way to do this price. I've had uh, you know, several calls this year already of uh, friends I know that haven't got through, taken their own lives, their business went under, uh, the shame of their uh, you know, their financial future and not being out of front of their family. I've had uh, you know, friends of mine whose kids have been successful and happy all their life, but all of a sudden they've had to medicate because they are so distraught at everything that's happened this year, you know, the screens and the phones to me, are the biggest parenting issue, uh, pricing, my teenage daughter says, I'm over the top and you're a loser, dad, you tell me to get off my phone. Well, this year has trained all our kids to be on these screens more and more and more. And then now we're trying to have to work really hard to get them out, to get them exercising. So to lock them in and say, you've got an hour a day only is, is in itself a, a massive health question that I just think, we haven't studied. We don't know the outcome of it. You know, medical experts are saying this is going to be a tsunami of, tr- of trouble we've created by trying to solve a problem. Now, maybe they work out and say that was the best thing to do. Maybe that, that is the case. I, I'm not sure that is. But the fact that we're not even getting panels of experts every day privacy discussing that and saying, hey, here's something that you should be able We should have been able to get the kids back to school a bit earlier. Is that possible? How could we have done that? So, that debate hasn't been had, and you know, it's going to come at a cost, I think. Just finally, from a hospitality point of view, you, you do run some hospitality venues. You're, if I made you Premier next Monday, what was the, would be the first thing you'd do? We'd be to consult really um, closely with every sector. And, and um, you know, as I said before, I grew up in, in the pub game. We, we uh, lived it and breathed it as, as a family. It's, it's, it's small business. It's small families. You know, people who open, uh, you know, small businesses tend to put everything on the line and you, and you have debts and you, and you work really hard to try and find a way in those solutions. And, and no one's more incentivized to do this safely than whether it's people in a gym, people in a small cafe, people in, you know, the, the private sector who've had their business shut down because 
if you get a uh, you know a, a butcher shop with a cat, that is the worst thing that can happen. Not only for the state, but for that individual shop. That's that is just the end of your business. So, some of the tech solutions that have been available right back to March have uh, have been really smart solutions. And and you know in Sydney, I've referenced this before. The Atlassian tech guys may be the smartest tech guys Australia's ever produced. Um, they jumped in and were collaborated with by the New South Wales Premier on standardisation across all of that sector, got that sorted out, took them about a week to do it. We've had brilliant minds, you know, Rick Jamison from Harry the Horror coming up with smart badge technology to safely be able to get the events sector back open. We've had gym owners who have been really, really um, up front with how they could stage people, they could separate, they could have traded through this period of time. And I think what's been challenging is we've seen other sectors do it. So if you're a construction worker and fantastic, I love walking past the building site seeing the boys on on the job and doing their thing and doing it safely. So we have been able to do it in some sectors, but other sectors, no matter how much they've screamed, and people, people are screaming, you know, not because they're chasing, you know, uh, they're screaming to save their lives and their families' lives. And you put people in that position and they don't have a, a voice. Now, you know what, if you could say, you know, there is no way you're getting back, but from that point in time, here's some certainty. I think that gives people a, a mental break to go, all right, I can do a deal to find a way through. But when there's been, and there still is, you know, we're still sitting here on the 9th of October. Do we open up in 10 days' time? Do we not? This idea that you're going to get below five cases, does that go on to June next year? Do we get back into extreme lockdown again next year? When you when you have that level of uncertainty, leadership to me is showing certainty in uncertain times. And I, and I think that has been lacking uh, here in Victoria. Well said, Luke Darcy. Been a great pleasure to catch up. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Luke Darcy has called AFL finals throughout COVID and has been the 15th in this series of On The Record. He joins other sports stars who have turned their careers into a media career. And we have already talked with Sam Newman, Craig Kelly and Simon O'Donnell, all sports stars who are now media stars.